0: And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Friday, May 10th, 2019. We're gonna end this week off with two good sermons which we'll use as the foil for next week's worst easter sermon of the year contest we'll talk about that in a minute and this year's contestants are just as awful
1: as last
0: year's and the year before it's not getting any better Pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, self-appointed apostles and apostolates, and those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complex as those whom we need to be listening to, whose books apparently we need to be buying, and whose small group curricula we should be studying Instead of the word of God, you yeah, know, weird how that works. Over and again, we demonstrate that the steady diet of doctrine, that's teaching that's put forward for consumption by the average evangelical, far from biblical, far from what God's word says. And it's just a whole lot of pig slop out there. Now, next week, we will be diving headlong into... <laughs> can you hear the pain in my voice? Headlong into uh, our 2019 Worst Easter Sermon of the Year contest. Yay. I know.
2: <laughs>
0: ah, I could hardly wait. Now, a lot of you ask, why do you even do that? And it has nothing to do with the fact that I like pain, because I don't like pain. Uh, the reason why we do our Worst Easter Sermon of the Year contest is because if there's going to be a Sunday where, you know, the pastor is going to be expected to talk about Jesus crucified for our sins bodily raised from the grave for our justification, you know, stuff like that. And the implications as it relates to his death and resurrection, you know, Easter Sunday is that day when you, you know, you're, you should be hearing that. And uh, and so it's a great indicator, not a perfect indicator, but a great indicator that you may not be in a good church if your pastor completely whiffs it on uh, Resurrection Easter Sunday. J- you just saying, Yeah, it's. Really good indicator. But before we get into the bad sermons, I want to hold up two sermons for you that I will just put them not in the great category. We'll just put them in the good category. Why? Because they're exegetical. Why? Because they both will proclaim Christ crucified for your sins, risen from the grave for your justification. Talk, maybe even mention something to do with the great hope of our, of our being raised from the grave because he's risen from the grave, you know things like that, and they're both exegetical, they both distinguish between law and gospel, and the first sermon is going to be Pastor uh, Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley, second sermon will be myself, Pastor Chris Roseborough, and uh, and so that's what we'll do, we'll listen to Pastor Charmley first, we'll take a break, and then when we come back, we will listen to my sermon, and uh, to to do this right, because th- there is a right way to do this here at Fighting for the Faith, we'll go ahead and launch into our good sermons to end the week off with the, the way we normally do our good sermons. So let's do this. Bum, bum, bum. Bum, bum, bum. The Good, the Bad, the Ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Good Easter sermon number one today comes to us from Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley from Bethel Evangelical Free Church, Hanley Stoke-on-Trent in the United Kingdom. And the message is titled Encounter in the Garden. And it's based upon the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verses 1 to 18. Sermon number two comes from Pastor Chris Rosebro, Kongsvinger Lutheran Church, Oslo, Minnesota. And the name of his sermon is titled When Death and Life Battled, and it's based upon the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24 verses 1 to 12. So let's get to it. Without any further ado, here's Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley.
1: Our gospel reading this morning is taken from the gospel according to John, chapter 20, verses 1 through 23. John 20, 1 through Twenty-three In chapter 19, John has spoken of the crucifixion and the burial of the Lord Jesus. And he has left for a while the Lord in the tomb. The disciples are utterly distraught. What has happened? They cannot make sense of this. And they are filled with sorrow. Peter therefore went out, and the other disciple, and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together, the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not know the scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again to their own homes. But Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping, and as she wept she stooped down and looked into the tomb. Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say, teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me. For I have not yet ascended to my Father, but go to my brethren, and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, and to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord, and that he had spoken these things to her. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. And may God bless the reading of his glorious gospel. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Our text is found in the chapter that we read from John, chapter 20 and verse 16. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say, teacher. Here was a woman who was absolutely overwhelmed by grief. And we do not blame her, in a sense, for that. Here was the man who meant the most to her in the world. He had... Given her new life. The gospels tell us that Mary had been possessed by by seven demons. Now whatever else that means. It means that her quality of life would have been appalling. Having these evil spirits residing within her. Doing what they would. And Jesus had cast them out. And had set her free. And had given her this new life, this life of discipleship, of following, her, of following him. And now he was dead. We know, of course, that he rose again. But the disciples at the time, although Jesus had told them that he would rise again, yet they didn't understand this, as John says in verse 9. For as yet they did not know the scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. And one of those scriptures, of course, is the one we read in our Old Testament reading from Psalm 16 and verse 10 You will not leave my soul in Sheol, that is the place of the dead. They didn't know, it wasn't they didn't know their Bibles, Jesus had taught them the scriptures, it's they didn't understand what the scripture meant until the light of Christ shone upon them. And so here is Mary, disconsolate. What is going on? What has happened, she thinks. And here Jesus comes to her. It's perhaps the most personal, most touching of all the resurrection encounters that people had with the risen Christ. This woman mourning her teacher at the tomb. So we see first of all here the sorrow of Mary. Secondly we see the surprise of Mary. And thirdly the sending of Mary by the Lord. First we have the sorrow then of Mary. And isn't it entirely understandable when you lose someone that you are very, very close to. You lose someone that you know very well. We've all had that experience. Then it's an awful shock. You always expected he would be there. You always expected he would be around. That's what the disciples thought We're his disciples. He is our rabbi. Our whole life is bound up with his, is invested in his work. And Mary in particular, Mary who had more to thank Jesus for than many of the other disciples. They all had a great deal to thank him for. For him calling them to be his disciples, to follow him, to hear his wonderful words, because no man ever spoke like this man. To see his miracles. No man ever did what this man did. To share his life. To eat with him every day. And now suddenly. He had been arrested. Betrayed by. They would have looked at Judas and said. One of our own. How could it happen that Judas. The man that we trusted. Betrayed Jesus. There was that shock there. And then they had seen Jesus tried by a kangaroo court. They'd seen Pontius Pilate bullied into crucifying him. You read the account of Pilate. It's evident that Pontius Pilate, like any Roman governor, basically his concern is, I don't want a riot. I don't want to have to send back to Rome and say, well, because I wouldn't put to death the man that the... Jewish leaders wanted to be killed. I let the Jews riot because Rome would immediately write back and say, You fool! Who cares about one Jew, one dead Jew, one way or the other? The riot would have been the end of his career. And so, Pilate, as the Jewish leaders bully him, say, You're no friend of Caesar if you don't betray, if you don't crucify this man, Pilate buckles and gives in. That doesn't mean he's not guilty. It means he's guilty of being a coward. He's guilty of deliberately allowing a miscarriage of justice. He's guilty of condemning an innocent man knowing he's innocent. Pilate was bullied into it. The Roman soldiers, well, if you tell the group of Roman soldiers, crucify a man... They would say, sir, yes, sir, jump to it and think. And afterwards, we've got all his personal belongings that we can divide among ourselves. And what we don't need to use ourselves, we can sell for extra beer money or something like that. Because that's how Roman soldiers thought They were callous. These are men who crucified dozens, perhaps hundreds of people. The Romans didn't care. And so they saw Jesus die in this appalling manner. Crucifixion was a horrible way to go. It was intended to cause maximum pain and humiliation. And then he had been taken down, and thanks to one of the disciples, Joseph Arimathea, who was a member of the council, he had been buried at least in a dignified tomb. but he was dead. And here is Mary. He was laid in the tomb on the preparation day. That's a technical term for Friday. We say Friday, the Jews say preparation day. And the next day was the Sabbath. And on the Sabbath, they would do no work. They certainly wouldn't want to come into contact with a dead body on the Sabbath. And so he is laid in the tomb. And Mary... And other women of the company are saying to themselves, and when Monday comes, we'll go to the tomb and we'll give him a proper send-off, a proper burial. They were Jews, they believed that there would be a great resurrection at the end of the age. But not, not right now, in the middle of the age, surely not. Oh yes, Lazarus had been raised from there, but that's different. That was different. Lazarus was restored to the life he had. And Jesus did it. But Jesus was dead. This was it. What would happen? They didn't know they were filled with sorrow. And Mary, more than most, perhaps more than any, she was filled with sorrow and grief. And seeing the tomb empty, I can't even give him a proper Send off. It must be awful. Not being able to go to the grave. Not being able to go to a funeral. Because there's no corpse. It's bad enough. In a situation, say, where someone is lost at sea, an aircraft goes down in the sea and nothing can be recovered. But there's been a body and now it's gone. Where is he? Where is she? Where is he? Where is this man who was everything to her? Her rabbi, her life, he gave her life. He gave that life meaning. Where was he? What was to be done? Peter and John sprinted off to the tomb. Mary followed after them. And as the two men hurried back to tell the other disciples, Mary remained at the tomb, weeping. She looked in, and she saw two men in the tomb. Now they were angels, that is heavenly messengers, but they took upon themselves the appearance of men. Angels, of course, are spirits. They have no bodies themselves. But they would take to themselves the appearance of a body. And so she sees these two men in white, one at either end. And they look up at her. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? The angels know everything that has happened. The angels know precisely why there is no body in the tomb. They know that Jesus Christ is alive. That he's risen. The angels cannot understand Mary. They're angels. Angels don't suffer loss as we do. They are spiritual beings. They do not die, they do not marry, nor are they given in marriage. They don't have children. They don't understand, in the sense of having experienced, human grief. How can they? And here in particular, they know precisely what's going on. And she replies to them, they've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. And then she turns away from them, what was it? Was it that look of bafflement on their faces? That look that said, we don't understand what you're talking about. Because they didn't how could they because they knew what she didn't angels always hear the voice of god they always do the voice of, they always do the things that god tells them here was mary who had heard jesus say i will be put to death and rise again and she hadn't understood those words No wonder the angels then couldn't understand her situation. They are ministering spirits, but angels, well, they couldn't understand this situation because they knew there was nothing to weep about, didn't understand that Mary didn't understand herself. And so she turns away, and there is somebody else, a figure. And so we come, secondly, to Mary's surprise. She sees this figure, and she doesn't recognize this figure. Now, why doesn't she recognize it? We know that Jesus, when he was on the road to Emmaus, there's an account of Jesus meeting with two other disciples on the road, and they didn't recognize him. Because their eyes were kept from doing so. So that's a possibility. There's also the fact that the last person Mary was expecting to see alive in that garden was Jesus. She knew he was dead. She's filled with grief. Her eyes with tears. Perhaps it was the tears that kept her from seeing. Perhaps it was a whole combination of these things. Perhaps it was the fact that his body now had passed through death. Well, he wasn't like Lazarus or any of the people he raised up. He returned them to the life they had before. He reversed death for them, if you will. But Jesus, in his resurrection, hasn't reversed death so much as he's gone through it. He hasn't gone back. He's gone forward to a new life. A resurrection life. Perhaps that has something to do with the failure to recognize. In any case, she sees a man. And she says to herself, You can see the reasoning. I'm here in a garden. And this is Joseph of Arimathea's burial place. You can imagine that it would have been quite a, an attractive forecourt cemetery yeah, affair, as it were. It's a cave. And in front of it, there is some sort of forecourt, some sort of garden, and this garden would have been planted with trees so that Joseph and his family could come and remember their loved ones in this beautiful, peaceful environment, rather like our civic cemetery is in this city. Here he is, this man in the garden. And her reasoning is, well, the only reason is a man in a garden early in the morning, he's got to be one of the garden staff, one of the people who looks after the garden, supposing him to be the gardener. It makes sense, it's logical. It's not true, it's not right, but we have a tendency to jump to conclusions like this. And the last person that she could think it is the person it really is. She supposed him to be the gardener. And so she speaks to him as though he is the gardener. And he says to her, first of all, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? In tones of deep, heartfelt sympathy. For we read of the Lord Jesus Christ that he is able to sympathize. He is the sympathizing saviour. He himself living a human life, had lost loved ones. It's notable that beyond the account of Jesus at the age of 12, there is no mention of Joseph, the husband of Mary. Which suggests, and particularly the fact that when Jesus died, he, the eldest son, committed Mary, his mother, not into the care of Joseph, her husband, which would be the obvious thing if Joseph was alive, but into the care of John, the beloved disciple, who may very well have been Mary's nephew, because we're told by some of the evangelists that the women standing at the tomb, are standing by the cross, included Salome, the mother of James and John. And John says that there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. Now those are four different women because it makes absolutely no sense for anybody to have two daughters and call both of them Mary. So Mary, the wife of Clopas, has to be a different person from Mary, the mother of Jesus' sister. You don't have a woman called Mary with a sister called Mary. That would lead to endless confusion in the family. But it's typical of the Apostle John. He doesn't name himself throughout his Gospel. And so it makes sense that he wouldn't name his mother either, which leads to the conclusion that John was probably Mary's nephew. And so again, it makes sense that you've got a member of the family, a close member of the family, who is a disciple. And Jesus commits Mary into his care. But Joseph's not mentioned. Conclusion then is Joseph is dead. That Jesus, probably as a teenager, stood at the grave of the man whom he had called on earth. His earthly father who had done the duty of a father on earth to him. He knew loss. We see him weeping at the grave of Lazarus. Here is one who can do what the angels cannot do. He can enter into sympathy with us because he is human. He's God as well. He is human. He is the God-man. And the sacred humanity of the Redeemer means that he enters so gloriously into our sorrows. And so he says in tones of deepest sympathy, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And she turns, and with tears in her eyes, she says to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Now, it's highly unlikely that Mary would have actually been able to carry the body of a full-grown man. But she's not thinking about that. She's thinking, I must have him. We must have the body, we must have a proper funeral for him, a proper burial. Particularly given the burial practice of the Jews, if you had one of these rock-cut tombs, you would put the body in there for a year, while all the soft tissues decay, and then you'd come back a year later and have, as it were, a second funeral. So if there's no body, then this has all been interrupted. But she is still thinking on this horizontal level, on this level, well, of course, he's a man, he's dead, dead men don't come back. So so far then are the Gospels from being as some of these sceptics and mockers think, books by people who thought the supernatural happened every day, that they are books that are full of people who are just like us and say, well, dead men don't come back. You know, we're sensible first century people here so they said, so they thought but she did not recognize the Lord and then he speaks and it's one word the second word Mary, her name and there is everything in that word that love, that care the, the love of the teacher for his disciples the love of the one who's given her life for the one whom he has given life and she hears that familiar voice now, that familiar sound and she looks up and says Rabboni teacher you're alive teacher And she's filled with wonder. This is not a man who has just managed to survive death. This is a man who is full of life. More full of life than she'd ever seen him before, I expect. This is a man who has conquered death, who has overcome death. And she sees him and naturally she throws her arms around him, embraces him. Rabboni, you're alive. And she holds on to him as though she will never, never let go again. I've lost him once. I'll never lose him again. And all that sorrow is gone and the tears of sorrow replaced by tears of surprise and tears of joy. eye And she holds on to him. She holds on to him. The surprise of Mary. The surprise of Easter morning. Christ is alive. He is alive. Not a spirit, not an apparition, but she is holding on to a solid human body. He is really alive. And that's why there was no corpse in the tomb, of course. Because he's there, alive. Alive. What was laid in the tomb has risen again from the dead. It is transformed, it is transfigured, as it were, by this process of resurrection. But it is the same Jesus who is alive. He who gave himself for our sins is raised again to declare that victory is won. And she holds on to him, he's alive, he's alive, he's alive. Thirdly, we see the sending of Mary. And Jesus says, do not cling to me. Stop holding on to me. It could be translated as. That's the force of the word. She is holding on to him. He doesn't say, do not touch me, as the Latin rendered it, but he says, do not hold on to me, or stop holding on to me. The force here is that she is naturally embracing him. Who wouldn't in a situation like that? Who wouldn't? I think even some of us undemonstrative under English people would lose our reserve at that point and give him a hug. He's alive. But he says, do not cling on to me. Stop clinging to me. Because what she wants... Again, it's perfectly natural. What she wants is for things to go back to the way they were. And isn't that a perfectly normal human feeling? We want things to go back. We tend to look back. Things were so much more wonderful back then. And the older we get, the more we tend to look back on the past with rose-coloured glasses. I mean, I think of... not yet forty myself, but I think of when I was a lad living in Norwich and at Easter time. The church, little little parish church, but it wasn't that little actually. Much but it's about three times the size of this building, would be packed at Easter time. And I remember the the desert rats parading down the Earlham Road, all the war, all the Second World War veterans with their banners and their medals. And it was a wonderful time. And we look back and we see how wonderful things were back then. Ah, but Christ does not take his people back. He takes his people forward and he leads his people on to the place where he has gone. We sing at Christmas time and it's always true. He leads his people forward. Forward is our watchword. God's people look forward, we look for the life of the age to come. Now Mary, quite reasonably here, quite normally for a human being, thinks he died. That whole life was completely destroyed, but now he's alive, we can have it back again. No, it will never go back. Things can never go back. But things will go forward. And so Jesus says, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. Don't hold on to me. Don't think that things will go back. But things will go forward. Things keep on going forward. God's plan isn't a taking people back. It's taking people forward. In the beginning, God put Adam and Eve our first parents in a garden and the Bible gives us a, a, a sort of glimpse a foretaste in the, the book of Revelation of where God is taking us and it's not just a garden, it's a garden city it's more than a garden, it is a garden, but it's more than a garden here is Jesus alive But not to go back, but to go forward. That there is the plan of the Father. He has to ascend to the Father. And then, having ascended to the Father, he will send the Holy Spirit. So that he will be with his people, not bodily, but spiritually. So he said, before the ascension, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. But it's a different sort of presence. So he says to Mary, do not cling to me. Stop holding on to me. Stop trying to go back. Because forward is better. Forward is the fullness of God. She wants to go back. But you can't go back. You can never go back. You can never turn back the clock. You can go where you were in the past but it has changed it's been said by one writer that no man ever go, ever crosses the same river twice because if, when he crosses it it's a different river and a different man you can only go forward that's the way God has made our world has made us as human beings but Jesus says to Mary go, go to my brethren some lovely word, my brethren. It's the only time that Jesus refers to his disciples as my brethren. the point that some, even some quite sensible scholars and preachers have looked at this and thought, well, he must be saying to my natural brothers, to the children of Mary and Joseph, no, he, he's speaking to his disciples. He sends Mary to his disciples. That's why in verse 18 we read that Mary came and told the disciples. Jesus says, I'm sending you to my brethren. He is not ashamed to call them brethren. If you're a Christian this morning, Jesus says you are his brother or his sister. You together, we who are Christians here this morning, we are Jesus' brethren. He's not ashamed to call them brethren. And it's a marvellous word. There they were filled with doubt and fear. Who completely failed to understand what he had told them many times. And he says, my brethren. And again, here he is. He has risen from the dead. He has entered into a totally different type of life. A transformed life, a new life, the other side of death. He has passed through death and come out alive, the other side. And he says, My brethren, because he is still fully human, he is still the man of Nazareth. That body is the body that was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary, that was born at Bethlehem, that lived at Nazareth, that is the same man. this Jesus is still human. Fully human. More human, I would venture to say, than we are. Because he is without sin, without any of the flaws and faults and wickednesses that have been brought into humanity by the fall. He's the perfect man, perfectly human in every sense, and perfectly fully God as well. How, how can it be? How it was done, we can't discuss, says the hymn writer, but this we know it done for us. For us. He is risen. And his resurrection is a wonderful declaration. Because he was delivered up for our offenses. The Son of Man has come. He said not to be ministered unto, not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many for the forgiveness of sins. And his word on the cross, it is finished. Means, I've done everything the Father gave me to do. I've done the work of salvation, he says, on the cross. And then he died. And then he rested the seventh day. Isn't that significant? He rested the seventh day, even as when God had completed the work of creation, God rested the seventh day. So when God had completed the work of redemption, he rested the seventh day. And then on the first day of the week, Christ is raised from the dead. Christ rises from the dead and declares, peace be with you. He says, everything I told you about what I was doing, I was doing this to deliver you from sin. To deliver everyone who believes in me from sin, not only the penalty but the thing itself. Everything I told you is true. Everything. The gospel is true because Jesus, or shown to be true because Jesus rose again. He rises to say, everything they said about me being a liar, a deceiver, a false messiah, all that is a lie. Because if I, if it were true, if I were genuinely a false messiah, I'd be dead. But I'm alive. I am he who lives, he says now, and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. And hold the keys of death and of Hades. I am alive. Go to my disciples and say to them. And what is the message that he said? Say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father. And to my God and to your God. That there is... More to come. There is more to come in this wonderful work. Forty days and he shall ascend into heaven. Forty days and he shall be received up from their sight. And then, when the forty days are over, there will be a wait. And then on the fiftieth day, the day of Pentecost, he will send the Holy Spirit from heaven. To fill the church with his power, the spirit who will never be withdrawn, the spirit who is the spirit of Christ, the spirit by whom Christ dwells in and with and among his people. Do not cling to me, he says, there's no going back, but go and tell them that there's a going forward, there's always a going forward. And that going forward is the whole of the history of the church. Up until that day when Christ shall come in glory. Up until the time when our eyes shall see him. When every eye shall see him. When he shall come with the sound of the trumpet and with the archangel. We have received, of his fullness we have all received. Says the apostle, and grace for grace. And so he sent Mary with this message of grace. This message, I am risen and I am ascending. And we can add to that that word, He is coming again. Christ is risen. Christ is ascended on high. Christ is coming. Christ is risen. On this Easter morning, he drives away our sorrow and reminds us of the great joy that he is alive. We are brought that surprising news that Christ is alive. And we are pointed forward with that message. That message, do not cling to the old. Do not think of going back to the old. But rejoice that Christ is ascended to the Father. Not only his Father, whom he stands in a perfect and unique relationship with, but the one whom in our prayers we address as our Father, because he is Christ's Father, and because by grace we are his children by divine adoption. And so he sends us the news, and so he bids us rejoice, for he is risen, as he said. Amen.
0: Amen. So what would you think? love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is fightingforthefaith.com. or you can subscribe on Facebook, Facebook.com forward slash christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at christian. Quick break. When we come back, sermon number two, When Death and Life Battled. Uh, this is based on the Gospel of Luke 24, verses 1 to 12. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. If you want advice on how to have your best life now, you're in the wrong place. You're listening to Fighting for
1: the Faith.
2: This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough! You be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. <clears throat> Max Holliday's Birdcage Theater presents Church Day Select. Hey guys. It's Rex here. I know that you've all been hearing about Stephen Furtick's latest book, Greater. Well, I took the time to check it out, and I have to say that I was greatly underwhelmed. For example, in this book, he talks about Elisha burning his plows in order to follow Elijah. For some reason, Furtick then asks us to do the same. Uh-huh. Right. Furtick only gave you half the story. Where in your book does it tell everyone to sacrifice their oxen and cook their carcasses over your burning plows, Furtick? Nowhere. That's why I'm taking it one step further with my new book, Greater Than or Equal To. You think Furtick's book was bad? My book will do it better, better. I'm not a wimp like Furtick. I do it all! That's right. Not only did I burn my plows like Elisha, but I took my oxen, and I sacrificed them with my bare hands. I moved on from that, and I'm now living it up like John the Baptist. I wear a camel's hair jacket with my Bible pants and eat locusts with wild honey. I added some chipotle sauce for flavor. I guess it worked. Anyway, got another question for you, Furtick. Ever heard of Hosea? Well, you conveniently skipped the whole part about marrying a prostitute.
1: Well, I did
2: it. On top of that, I'm cooking the locusts tonight for my new wife. Just like Ezekiel. I'm cooking my food over poop. It's so awesome. So watch out, Verdict. Greater than or equal to is way better than your book, you pansy. What if, um, the heretic doesn't repent? Then we throw them in the boo box. (laughs) To err is to heretic. To r is to pirate. Get yourself over to www.piratechristianradio.com Forward slash refermanda. And purchase yourself a copy of the game Refermanda and join the fight for the fate today. Hey everyone, it's Rex here to tell you about a product that I use on a daily basis. It's Coffee by Gillespie. It's delicious. It's got the caffeine you need to be a functioning member of society and. I personally like mine as whole bean because it goes so well with milk. Uh, That's what I call a balanced breakfast. So head on over to Gillespie.coffee and get some. That's G-I-L-L-E-S-P-I-E.coffee. Rex out.
0: We're back. Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to think that, well, you know, preaching Christ and crucified for our sins and risen from the grave bodily is an important, vital, central part of Christianity, because it is. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us. It is a partnership. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our three friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. The other says become a patron. When you join our crew, you get to pick your rank in our crew and rank based upon your monthly commitment, lowest rank, Powder Monkey at $9.95 a month. After that, Gunner's made at $24.95 a month. From there, Master Gunner, $49.95 a month. Quartermaster, $99.95 a month. Joining our crew, great way to support us. Of course, if you'd like to make a one-time contribution, click on the donate button. If you'd like to become a patron via Patreon, click on the become a patron button. And if you'd like to support us the old-fashioned analog way, you can make your gift payable to... Fighting for the Faith, and then it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208, and let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. Here's a good sermon number two, uh, again from uh, Pastor Chris Rosebro of Kongsvinger Lutheran Church, Oslo, Minnesota, sermon titled, When Death and Life Battled, based upon the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, verses 1 to 12. Here we go. The Holy Gospel, according to St. Luke, the 24th chapter. On the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking spices that they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how I told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna, the mother of uh, Mary, the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Praise you, Christ. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. In the name of Jesus. Amen. So... You ever hear these great epic battles? Well, we had the epic battle of Jesus being tempted by the devil, the devil being the heavyweight champion of the universe. Nobody had been able to defeat him up until that point. And in three temptations, three rounds, the devil gets knocked out. Now, what about death? Death in our t- passages is described as an enemy, the last enemy to be destroyed, the text says, is death. And Jesus takes that enemy head on. Life versus death. Death versus the author of life himself. Yahweh in human flesh. Yahweh, the self-existing one. And so what happens? Jesus is crucified, stone-cold dead, and they lay his lifeless, cold corpse inside the tomb. And the mouth of the tomb is shut with a large, large stone. I mean, just the picture of this tomb, like a gaping mouth. There, death swallowed Jesus whole. Kind of like Jonah and that big fish, if you think about it. But how did that go for that fish? After three days, that fish got indigestion and decided to vomit Jonah back up. And all of that was a type and shadow of the resurrection of Christ. I feel bad for Jonah. Death would have been preferable in such a situation. Jesus, though, he goes into death head first. Death swallows him up. The stones rolled in front of the tomb, and they, well, it's not much of a fight, is it? Because over and again, when death comes in contact with Jesus, death gives way. And so Jesus takes the day off on Saturday. Takes the day off. Can you believe that? I mean, there's his lifeless, dead body, and he keeps the Sabbath perfectly. Perfectly. No work at all. He wasn't even breathing. No effort whatsoever. Talk about a restful day. And then, at the crack of dawn, that wonderful Sunday, Easter morning, boom, he comes back, conquering death. And this is everything for us. Because he was risen from the grave, we know then that his death on the cross was so that we can be forgiven, that it was accepted as by the Father as an acceptable sacrifice so that we can be reconciled to God and pardoned, we who are under the dominion of darkness and subject to death. Death visits all too often, and we all fear it in one way or another. But see, Jesus here has taken death head on, and death didn't even stand a chance. And so because of this amazing hope that we have, because Christ has bodily been raised from the grave, Paul writes in our epistle text today, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. It always cracks me up that the tin penny crackpot preachers, the ones who tell you if you send them a thousand bucks, God is going to give you a million, right? These people, they're always focusing on the here and the now. You give your heart to Jesus and Jesus will make your children more obedient. That is a total lie. I know this for a fact. Right? It's not true. You give your heart to Jesus and he'll give you a purpose. And you'll change the world. And he'll... To Fill your bank account with dollars like you wouldn't believe. You'll be healthy on into your hundreds and nobody will be able to say, wow, that person's cursed rather than blessed. It's all hogwash. Because Christianity is only for those who are under the sentence of death. And that's all of us. Because the wages of sin is death. So Christ takes those wages for us, goes into the tomb, comes out victorious. And so we hear, if in this life we 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 have hope in Christ, then we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And he's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, all you farmers here know, I know nothing about farming. But I can tell you this, I have a clue about how the first fruits things work. Let me explain. So when I was a wee little lad living in Southern California, my mom thought it would be a great idea to put together a vegetable garden. So she, we grew some corn, we had carrots and cabbage and lettuce and zucchini, but then she decided that she was going to buy a few tomato plants, a few. Not too many. I mean, they kind of circled the garden there. And when the first fruits showed up of our tomatoes, she was so excited because she felt like she had accomplished something. Here we had these not quite totally ripe, a little bit green, kind of reddish tomato thingies, and they tasted pretty good. And so we enjoyed the first fruits. But see, that's the thing about first fruits. Oh, there's always first fruits, and that's the down payment, letting you know that there's more coming. And oh, by the end of the summer... All right, every single night we were having tomato salad, okay? We were having homemade spaghetti like you wouldn't believe. If anyone came to visit, they were leaving with one, maybe two bags of tomatoes to take home with them. You get the idea. But see, Jesus is the first fruits of the new creation. He's that first ripe, I better not call Jesus a tomato, that would be really bad. But you get the idea, right? (laughs) Right? that Jesus is the firstfruits, he's the first of the new creation, because he's risen from the grave, we look to him and we say, ah, that's what we're going to be like when he returns in glory to judge the living in the dead. And see, here now we talk about our condition. You see, for by a man came death, and by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. And so we see that we, under the sentence of death because of the sin of Adam, now have that sentence of death taken away from us because of Christ. But then each in his own order. Christ first is the firstfruits. Then at his coming, all, the rest of us tomatoes will come. Then when Jesus returns, those who belong to Christ. And then, listen, then comes the end. Even the creation itself will die. Then comes the end, and he will deliver the kingdom of God, of the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule, every authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And we can be certain of this because the tomb is empty even to this day, and it's not empty because they stole the body. That doesn't make any sense. It's not empty because he was beamed up by aliens or any such things like that. It's empty because he bodily rose, just as he said. And that's why it was silly for them to look for the living among the dead. But now, because he is risen, we know that we are forgiven. We are no longer under the sentence of death. And God assures us now, through the prophet Isaiah, of what's to come. And what's to come is amazing all because Christ has risen from the dead. Listen to this. God says, Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. Let me do a Napoleon Dynamite here for a
3: second. Yes! That's
0: amazing. Because this life is hard. The suffering that we are made to go through The toil that we experience in putting food on the table. The strained relationships because of our sin. All of these things. The sicknesses that we experience. Some of them chronic. Some of them punctuated. And then, of course, don't even get me started about the fear and terror and guilt that we experience because of our own shortcomings. Considering our lives in light of the law of God. But all of these things, none of them shall be remembered or come to mind. It'll be Far in the past. Instead, we'll be glad and we will rejoice forever in that which God creates. For God says, behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. And no more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping or the cry of distress.
3: Cry of distress. We all know what that sounds like. Maybe we, you've made that cry at the loss of somebody, something. One of my first
0: experiences in the cry of distress was from the animal kingdom. You Think about a program I used to watch when I was a kid, you know, Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom right, with Marlon Perkins. And I was horrified, horrified because they had, vid- they had footage of a lion hunting gazelles. And as soon as that lioness goes into that sprint and chases down that gazelle and takes those claws and digs it into that animal, that animal lets out a cry that you can never forget. And I remember as a kid thinking, what on earth is this world like? But that will not be what it's like at all in the new earth because Christ is risen from the dead. No more shall there be an an infant who dies, who lives but just a few days. In fact, abortion will be a thing of the past. Or an old man who does not fill out his days. Listen to these words. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. You know, I think about the fact that the home that we live in is 100 years old next year. 100 years old. Pretty old as far as houses go, I think. It's impressive. And we are only the third owners of that house. And the fellow who owned it it previous to us, his name is still at the top of the list at the law firm that he helped found here in town. But I always think about the fact that the woodwork, the nice hardwood floors, and some of the decorative ornaments, he put those there, not me. And now he's gone is dead. And so I'm enjoying the work of his hand. And that's one of the inequities, if you would, kind of the bizarre things about the curse that we live in, because death is such an enemy. But God says, in the new earth, I'm overturning all of that, because the, you, the inheritance is eternal life, life without end. You will build houses, and you will inhabit them, and you will long enjoy the work of your Hands. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain, or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord, and their descendants with them. And before they call, I will answer. And while they are yet speaking, I will hear. And this is a great comfort because here and now, it sometimes feels like God isn't hearing us. Have you ever had that experience where you pray, Lord, I am in need, I am in danger, please help?
3: Are you there? God? Why are you so
0: far from my voice? Do you not hear me, Lord? And you read the Psalms. They're full of psalms like that. But in the new earth, it's not going to be this way at all. All because Christ has risen from the dead. They will call before they call. God will answer while they are yet speaking. God will hear and we will see Jesus face to face. We with our own eyes after we are raised from the grave. We'll see the nail scarred hands of Christ and the nail scarred feet of Christ
3: with our own eyes. And He will hear our prayers and answer us even before we are finished. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. Amazing if you think about it. You don't put
0: wolves and lambs together. It's a bad thing. Right? But in the new earth, no one would even think that way. Maybe wolves and lambs will like be best buddies. It's like, can't get those two apart. Every time you see a lamb, oh, there's always a wolf nearby. And it's a good thing, not a bad. And I love this little line because it talks about still the serpent is cursed. Dust shall be the serpent's food. The devil still is in the dirt. And they shall not hurt or destroy. In all of my holy mountain, says the Lord. And all of this, because Christ has risen from the grave. He's conquered the last enemy, and the last enemy is death. And when he returns in glory to judge the living and the dead, he will throw the devil himself into the lake of fire. Click. Gone. He will throw death and Hades themselves into the lake of fire, and they will trouble us no more all because he's already conquered death. Now you sit there and go, yeah, but he's already conquered death. But it sure does seem like we still have a lot of that death running around around here. Yeah, I get that. In the now and the not yet, things are a little bit, well, bizarre. Have you ever heard stories of Japanese soldiers who years and years after the war ended, they were stationed on some tiny little island, and they thought the war was still going on. You think about the poor fellows who had the job of going out and finding these Japanese soldiers and saying, hey, listen, the war's over. Put the gun down. Don't kill me. Right? But see, that's kind of the idea. We here, this is a foreign embassy. This is an embassy of the kingdom of God. Each and every one of us ambassadors to announce to the people here in town in Grand Forks, in North Dakota, in northwestern Minnesota, to let them know that Jesus has conquered death, that he has bled and died for them, risen from the grave, and that God is giving out full pardons to all rebel sinners, freeing them the consequences of their sins because Christ has taken that upon himself and is promising them that he is going to make a new heavens and a new earth and all that is wrong here, and we all know that it's wrong here because we've contributed to that wrong and we've experienced it firsthand that all of that is going away and we'll never recall it to mind. All because Christ went toe-to-toe with death. Let death swallow him whole. And yet he came bursting from the tomb, breaking the teeth of death so that we have nothing to fear from it. He is risen. Hallelujah, amen so what'd you think love to get your feedback if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of fighting for the faith you can do so my mail address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on facebook facebook.com forward slash pirate christian follow me on twitter my name there at pirate christian till next week may god richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by jesus christ his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.